This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to The Readback. If you've ever stood in the parking lot of a car dealership, you're probably familiar with those stickers that go on the window of every car. They tell you everything you want to know about the vehicle, including engine specs, fuel mileage, entertainment features, safety ratings, and of course, the cost. It leaves little to the imagination. The precision makes the world of autonomous cars that much more surprising. Every company has a different name for their autonomous features. Honda calls it Honda Sensing, Subaru calls it EyeSight, and Tesla has Autopilot and what it now calls full self-driving. It's enough to confuse any consumer. And intentional or not, it's working. Part of the issue is that self-driving remains a largely unregulated business. That car sticker we just mentioned is actually required by federal law but no such thing exists in the self-driving world. For now, when it comes to self-driving, it's still the Wild West. But there is an international framework created by the Society of Automotive Engineers. It's called the Taxonomy and Definitions for Terms Related to Driving Automation Systems for On-Road Motor Vehicles. You can see why it hasn't made it onto those car dealer stickers yet. But it's still important. You can think of it as the Magna Carta of self-driving. We briefly mentioned the levels in our last episode. They go from zero, basically a car that maxes out at traditional cruise control, to five, a fully autonomous experience that requires no input from a human driver. Take my Honda Pilot, which is level one, or driver assistance. It has those Honda-sensing features like automatic braking and lane keeping. They're nice to have, but they don't do much to change the driving experience. When you move up to level two, partial driving automation, things get more interesting. But it's still a long way from the promise of getting a ride in the backseat of your own car. The key here is that you still need to be in the driver's seat and you still need to be paying full attention to the road because the car may need you at a moment's notice. And it's up to you to know when that moment arrives. This is where Tesla is now. As we talked about last week, the company is in the process of rolling out the beta version of its so-called full self-driving software. Yes, full self-driving is the name for its software package that's graded as partial driving automation, or level two. Confused? So are we. Levels three to five remain largely theoretical in the automotive world, at least among cars you can buy yourself. Level three is called conditional driving automation. This allows a driver to look away from the road. The car will request your attention if it's needed. But there's another caveat. The features only kick in if conditions are perfect. Level four is high driving automation. That's where Waymo, the Google spinoff, exists today. This is where things shift into higher gear. 
The catch is that Waymo for now is still only commercially available in parts of Phoenix, Arizona, where the weather is pretty much ideal for driving, as long as you have air conditioning. Despite the daunting task, the industry is pushing forward. In September, Waymo got permission from the California DMV to expand its autonomous operations in the state. Cruise, General Motors' self-driving unit, was also approved. What does that mean? It means there are no longer permits simply for testing. And in the case of Cruise, it moves Cruise one step closer to offering autonomous rideshare to people on a paying basis. So you and I could be in California, in the Bay Area, and we could, in essence, hail a Cruise autonomous vehicle to take us to a certain destination, whatever it might be. The permits mean money could soon be changing hands in California for real-life autonomous car rides. But more than the money, every ride means additional training for Waymo and Cruise cars. And that's crucial to get autonomous programs going more broadly. According to their latest updates, Waymo's cars have covered roughly 20 million miles on public roads, while Cruise has 2 million miles under its belt. Here's Alex Davies, the author of Driven, a book on the history of self-driving cars. The challenge for Waymo and for other companies is to figure out how to take something that works at a really small scale in a really tightly prescribed area and actually expand it to the point where it becomes useful to a significant number of people. The ability to scale and eliminate boundaries is what gets you to the holy grail of level five, or full driving automation. This is the autonomous car that can go anywhere and do anything. It's the dream scenario we've all been talking about. The self-driving car in every driveway. Going from level four to level five sounds small, but could prove to be a decades-long process. There's a big difference between traversing a few roads in Phoenix and heading anywhere across the country. It's similar to that conversation we had a while back about going from 99% to 100%. Level 5 is all in. It's 100%. There's no backup plan for the computer driver, and mistakes are life or death. And until we recreate the human brain on a computer, it's probably not going to happen. Depending on your perspective, making this leap is either aspirational or impossible. And while car accidents are a leading cause of death in the United States, no one has found a way to improve on the human driver yet. Humans aren't exactly the best drivers here. You know, they have their own flaws with everything. But it actually sets a surprisingly high benchmark. And they have brains that, frankly, no compute solution can replicate. That's Austin Russell, the CEO of Luminar, who we heard from last week. This may come as a surprise, given all the progress we've made with artificial intelligence in recent years. A computer can beat people at Jeopardy. Watson, what is Sauron? Sauron is right, and that puts you into a tie for the lead with Brad. It can read x-rays. It can even write news stories. But it turns out there are certain things, even things we consider simple, that a computer just can't do very well. At least not yet. The hardest things for machines are the things that like a one or two-year-old child could do, say walk across a room without bumping into anything or carry on a conversation or recognize body language and predict what a person's going to do. You know, all of those things turn out to be the hardest things for AI systems. That's Melanie Mitchell, a professor at the Santa Fe Institute. 
There's been this kind of cycle ever since the beginning of people working on AI of extreme optimism and predictions for short-term fantastic progress that have been followed by disappointment and realization that the task is much harder than people imagined. It's not to say that AI hasn't made big strides, not just for splashy entertainment projects like Jeopardy! Champ Watson, but also for widely available tech we use in our day-to-day lives. Things like machine translation have gotten quite usable and speech recognition is great now. You know, it makes some errors, but it's pretty great. But driving interfaces with the complexities of the real world in a different way. And also, you know, it has life or death issues that like speech recognition and machine translation and playing games don't have. A lot of what we do when we drive, we humans, is subconscious. You know, we see pedestrians and we understand things about them from their body language that we don't even consciously recognize that we're processing that information and acting on it. So we don't think of that as hard because it's so immediate to us, but that turns out to be the hard part for machines. It's seeing that little wave from a driver across an intersection, or even a smile. The way that today's best systems work is that they are trained meaning that they are given examples of things labeled by humans. Like, you know, humans have labeled, this is a truck, this is a stop sign, this is a speed limit sign, this is a pedestrian about to cross the street, you know, and the machines learn from that. But it's not always clear exactly what features of the image they are relying on to make decisions. And it turns out that sometimes they're not relying on the same features we humans rely on at all. This is where all those miles driven we mentioned earlier comes into play. The real streets are necessary for making progress. The problem is those real streets also have real people. And that means opinions are forming even before the technology is finished. Here's Chris Ermson, the CEO of self-driving tech company Aurora. We've been able to watch this process unfold in real time. Most of the time, these kind of innovations, you know, are squirreled away in a lab somewhere. And there's a lot of all this work that happens behind the scenes. And then, you know, there's a glorious day where it shows up on stage and, you know, it appears instant. With self-driving, because the development takes place in the open and it's on the public streets around us, we've, as a society, been able to get a much closer look at how technology really unfolds. As someone working in the space, it would be lovely in some regards to be able to kind of not have to worry about that external perception. That external perception has been complicated by a mix of messages coming from the self-driving industry, according to Melanie Mitchell. One of the reactions, I think, has been to kind of redefine what self-driving actually means. How autonomous are these cars going to be? Well, like Tesla has this technology they call FSD, full self-driving. But it doesn't mean like the car is autonomous. (laughs) The person still has to have their hand on the wheel and be paying attention. And then geofencing, which is like, okay, the cars can be autonomous in certain areas where we have the infrastructure and the sensors and the mapping all done, but they can't be autonomous in other areas. So are those self-driving cars? Yeah, but not full in the sense that they can do anything that a human can do. So I think these goalposts 
depend on how you define exactly what the task is. Luminar's Austin Russell argues that the mixed messages are holding everything back. You take a look at these cars out there. They're really not autonomous. They're really test cars that are out there with backup drivers, usually. They have these $100,000 roof racks on them full of a bunch of sensing systems and a supercomputer in the truck to run the thing. When you call an assisted driving system full self-driving, it can be confusing. Uh, so it's not issues really fundamentally about the technology. It's more about how technology is represented and what it actually is at the end of the day. And that's one of the biggest points of contention, you know, say in, in the industry. And I think people are generally aligned for the most part on this with maybe one or two exceptions. But as an industry, I think people are going to want to continue to be very, very clear on what the capabilities of the product they have are and what the capabilities are not, rather than, you know, just leaning forward in terms of what the capabilities will be and then pushing it as those are what the capabilities are or can be. Kristen Kolodge, who oversees driver interaction research for J.D. Power, agrees. We have several voices within the public space, some more prominent than others, and our words matter. And this can be setting up expectations about that particular manufacturer's system and capabilities and, you know, expectations of what the driver's role is, for instance. But what we see is that it translates across the subject of automated vehicles in its entirety. And and that's the element that we need to be very cognizant of. Melanie Mitchell goes even further about the problem with branding calling the current conversation around self-driving dangerous. It's very dangerous. And you've seen a lot of accidents from people taking their hands off the wheel and not paying attention and the car crashes into something. It sets up expectations that this technology is more ready than it is. And then when that inevitable disappointment comes or accident, that hurts everybody because then people doing the funding decide not to give the money and decide that this is an impossible task. There's one more thing to think about. Years of public overconfidence about autonomous vehicles have put companies in a tough position. They've been forced to throw more and more money at self-driving with little in the way of returns. Here's Alex Davies. Two things have become really clear. One, this is an incredibly difficult thing to do and it takes a long time. And two, it costs a huge amount of money. Uber pulled out. Uber spent years working on this technology. It spent a ton of money on it. But I think, especially when its CEO changed from Travis Kalanick to Dara Khosrowshahi, they got to a point where they said, we need to start cutting some costs. And self-driving was a relatively easy thing to throw overboard because the attitude had changed. The hype had died down. It no longer seemed like an existential threat. There's a silver lining to all of this. We might now be in this stage that technology research firm Gartner calls the trough of disillusionment. It's a part of Gartner's often mentioned hype cycle and a phrase we heard repeatedly in our interviews. It's the point in the innovation process when people start to give up, when hopes are dashed. Ironically, it's often when the big progress finally happens. The expectations die down, which frees everyone up to take big risks again. 
I don't think we're more than five years away from seeing self-driving cars moving people around cities like San Francisco and New York, or maybe in slightly calmer cities, maybe not downtown Manhattan, which is kind of crazy, Los Angeles, Miami. I think all of those things are within reach. So what's next? If the cars finally arrive, will anyone get in? Next time on The Readback. Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back for our new season. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadbackatbarons.com. Thanks to Alex Davies, Austin Russell, Melanie Mitchell, Chris Ermson, and Kristen Kolage. For more coverage on self-driving, you can check out barons.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Additional thanks to Meta Latoft and Jackson Cantrell. Next week on the show, consumers remain skeptical of autonomous cars. Is there anything that could change their minds? On a scale of 1 to 100, the consumers at this point in time are at a score of 34. We'll be back next week.